Hey, I'm Brian and I'm a designer. And I'm Joe and I'm a designer. Today we have the pleasure of talking to semiotician Josh Glenn. We'll be talking about his work and how he figures out what means what to who. We'll get into it. Josh Glenn, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Just for some introductory, Josh Glenn is a, he's an amazing guy. He was an editor at the Reader. He has done a ton of stuff you have probably heard about. He ran the magazine Hermanot. He has run the blog Hilobrow. Uh, he published the Unboard books for kids. He is an editor. He's a reader. He's a researcher. In the past, uh, what, like maybe 10 years, you have gotten into the field of of semiotics. And uh, he's also a close personal friend of mine. We've worked on a whole bunch of things together for Boston Globe Ideas and other stuff. And uh, and we're really excited to have you on the podcast. Do you want to give our audience a little bit of an intro and then maybe kind of talk to them about what semiotics is? Because I think it's maybe something that people have maybe heard the word, but they don't really know what the hell it is and how it relates to design, you know? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Joe. And um, by the way, I've been doing semiotics for 20 years. Oh, snap. My bad. Is, I think... I can't remember how long I've known you, but I, I danced at your wedding so a very long time, maybe 20 years. Maybe. <laughs> it might have been around the time, same time I got into semiotics. I don't know. Okay, fair enough. So you want me to talk about sem what semiotics is first? Yeah, yeah, what is it? Pretend I'm a babe in the woods. Semiotics is a social science. It's the same age, actually, as anthropology and sociology, but no one's ever heard of it because for many years it was really restricted to language and how language works. It was almost considered a subset of linguistics. These days, not that anyone needs to know this, but linguistics is actually considered a subset of semiotics. But hmm. it wasn't until, um, really until like Roland Barthes um, started writing a newspaper column in France in the 50s that became his book Mythologies, which is a really fun book about what um, wrestling matches mean and what you know, ads yeah, for stake mean. He had some amazing essays. And he was taking the tools of semiotics, which basically understands, helps you understand what things mean and how things mean what they mean what you know what mm. is the what is the structure of significance the structure of meaningfulness that um, exists around particular cultural spaces or product categories in the, in the kind of work that i do and you know if you um if you unpack and study enough you know stimuli in that space you can really get into some really really sophisticated analytical um, ideas around what typography means and colors mean and you know facial expressions and language and so forth, and how they mean what they mean. It has emerged from that world of you know, linguistics. And it's sometime in the 90s, an academic named Virginia Valentine in England started applying semiotics to like the commercial sphere. And so telling branding people, hey, we can use this tool to help you, you know, uh, be better, write better marketing briefs, write better design briefs, you know, for your brand. I got hired around that in the late 90s, so shortly after all this stuff got going in England, a friend of mine, who liked my writing for an English magazine about American pop culture, which was very analytical writing that I was doing. And he said, hey, you could do this semiotics work. You could be my American kind of, um, you know, secret agent. <laughs> for many years, I was the kind of behind the curtains, um, American codes guy writing for, writing reports on, you know, these amazing topics like, you know, male grooming or, you know, uh, whatever it was. <laughs> for all these um, English and then other kinds of European and Asian uh, um, 
semiotics agencies. It never really took off in America in the same way until finally I decided about 10 years ago, maybe I should be the one who makes semiotics take off in America. Yeah. I can talk later about why it hasn't taken off here, but yeah, I left my job at the Boston Globe um, with the idea that semiotics, this work pays so well that I figured I could do it half time and then spend the other half time doing the onboard books and raising my kids and have, doing a kind of more fun projects and still get it, making the same amount of money I was making at the paper. Mm-hmm. So um, that was true for quite a while, but now my kids are out of college and I'm not really doing writing books that much anymore. So I kind of have to figure out, do I do this full time? Do I keep going? Do I move on to something else? But it's been a, a pretty fun way to like moonlight and make a good living for the last 20 years. Nice. Hmm. So that's a kind of like a super awesome kind of high level thing. Can you give us like an example? I mean, I'm not sure if you're under under NDA for for a client work you've done, but if you can just kind of grab something and kind of maybe talk about the high level, I mean, whether it's hot sauce or wrestling about kind of like what we understand something to be and then what maybe the kind of sub rows of things we're picking up that maybe we don't we even know what we're picking up. Do you maybe have a kind of a quick off the cuff example that might help people understand some of the stuff you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, I have a ton of case studies that I do um, that I share with clients all the time that I feel comfortable sharing. So uh, here's a kind of a, a, a brand refreshing project. So it's not only about packaging, it's about the whole brand's positioning. Um, yeah. Luna Bar, which is owned by Cliff Bar, and they were like the first energy bar for women. Right. They, um, early on, um, they're, they're a really good company that's like very um, environmentally conscious and they treat their employees really well. And right from day one, they decided they were going to like be about women's equality for Luna Bar. And they, mm. so they sponsored a women's mountain bike team for Luna and a men's mountain bike team for Cliff. They paid both teams the same amount. Like mm. it's like back in the eighties when no one was doing that. So they really were walking the walk. However, their positioning uh, until the last couple of years was really about kind of being, having it all, like being, um, you know, an awesome mom, but also an awesome business person and being super mm. in shape and like running marathons. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like the Marin housewife, you know, type A, <laughs> you know. Uh, right. That's their, that was their language. They're, they're the ones who called it the Marin housewife. But um, so, you know, so a lot of stuff about kind of having it all and being amazing. And, you know, that worked for them for a long time. However, other uh, women's energy bars started to come along. And and this is, this is often why I get called in because a brand kind of pioneered a certain space and then other brands copied them and they don't, they're no longer differentiated and not as great because other brands are newer and, you know, edgier and cooler and they have less to lose and they're, and they're, they're reacting against the, the first brand. Right. And they so, their own success. And Luna Bar, this is, this is in 2018, 17-18 when they hired me. So this is after Trump got elected, after the Women's March, after Me Too. They were like, this is not really a cool way to talk about women's empowerment anymore. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Um, it's, not, right. it's not like a bad, we're not demeaning women by saying they should kick ass in their work and in, at home and look great but, and be athletic, but it doesn't feel very culturally relevant anymore. Mm. Yeah. So yeah. we went out and did a big study of um, brands that were about women's empowerment from, you know, Dove to Special K to Nike, SoulCycle, you know, CoverGirl, um, whatever, as well mm. as... Um, you know, media, pop culture. So we were looking at like um, Broad City and, you know, Alicia mm. Keys and um, Bitch Media and, you know, all kinds of um, sort of edgier uh, media and brands and kind of did a big study of how is women's empowerment playing in the, in, for the American consumer right now? If you're an American consumer, what kind of stimuli are you taking in all day long from mm. media and brands? What kind of language, what kind of um, 
uh, the way I put it is forms and norms. I don't use I don't use the language like uh, I don't talk about um, you know uh, signs and signifiers because my clients get turned off by that kind of thing. So I right. I started I, I started using the phrase norms and forms. Uh, so I say what I'm going to study for you guys by looking at I'm going to gather I'm, we're going to agree on a stimulus set of all these you know brands and pop culture things. It's going to be like. 30, 40, 50 sources of stimuli. I'm going to look at advertising. I'm going to look at packaging. I'm going to look at um, social media from these brands. I'm going to look at social media about the brands. I'm going to look at pop culture, right? And I'm going to ha- end up having, you know, if I, if I have 40 brands in, this, in the study and for each one I'm getting 20 or 30 pieces of stimuli, that's hundreds, sometimes thousands of pieces of stimuli. Mm-hmm. And then we are going to um, analyze them and look for signals within the noise. What what kind of patterns do we see emerging here? And what we're looking for are, on the one hand, norms, as I call them. So by that, I mean, what are the ideas of this space that are being communicated in the space? What are the values? What are the functional benefits? What are the emotional benefits being um, expressed in the space? That's the what, you know? And then the how of the what is what facial expressions, typography, color, shapes, package architecture, um, language, retail space design is bringing those ideas and values and higher order benefits to life in this space right now in, in a kind of relevant, engaging way. And I assume that they're relevant, engaging because we're looking at like good brands and good media. We're looking at like the best stuff. So these are like the best ways to express these ideas and values right now in this yeah. culture. Right. So when I find a what and a how to go together. So for example, for a global project, this is one of the biggest brands in the world and they wanted to they decided their brand was going to be about vibrant optimism from now on, and they wanted their, you know, their uh, packaging to reflect that, and they wanted to kind of work as well as possible across, around the world. Mm. And so, for example, um, you know, we I'll get into it later, but we always create a kind of a four-quadrant map. So one of the quadrants of this map was called um, Expanded Horizon. So it was the idea within the, within the space of vibrant optimism, one of the ways you can do vibrant optimism is to talk about Expanded Horizon. So... The idea that like there's more to life than, than you're getting now. You know, there's hopefulness, there's optimism, there's things to learn, things to do. Mm-hmm. So like a kind of um, cliched, what we call residual way of doing that is what, what one of the codes that we came up with is colorful explosion. So <laughs> the norm there is the idea that it's, you know, um, it's just fun, right? And then the 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 forms, in other words, the uh, the way that norm comes to life is, kind of a barrage of shapes and colors like flying at you. It just feels like mm. too in your face. It's trying too hard. It's too obvious. Another one was um, shiny burst, so like a late explosion, you know what I mean, um, mm. around the, the the logo or somewhere on the pack. It feels kind of mm. like trying to grab your attention. Mm-hmm. Or if it's kind of a fruit flavor or fruit-oriented um, product, kind of hyper-realistic, like super overuse of um, kind of realism, kind mm-hmm. of over-promising naturalness. Those are kind of, again, now I say that they feel residual, like I'm not talking to consumers, so I don't have proof of any of this. I'm just coming up with with informed hypotheses um, about like how top of mind these are for consumers and whether or not these codes even exist. They kind of have to take my word for it. And then we, part of the reason I started this company, Sunmivox, six years ago with my partner, Ron Rantel, is because he's a consumer um, research expert. So we can kind of validate and build on this and kind of make it more, give some more uh, proof to it. But back to this expanded horizon space, to give you some more examples, so the kind of more dominant ideas in this space might be kind of tropical profusion. So like lush foliage, <laughs> suggesting like exuberant dynamic growth or loudness and hot colors. I, call, I would call that code pump up the volume. 
Uh-huh. So like the idea that like your your voice needs to be louder, your hair needs to be bigger, your life needs to be bigger, right? Mm. Um, mm. Prismatic, prismatic glam was another one, especially like in the toothpaste category. Like, I love these. <laughs> prismatic glam is the name of my favorite marijuana strain. Um, <laughs> so it, it occurs to me that like you're you're talking about this stuff, and and what's really funny is that from the space that that Brian and I come from, like there is also a kind of a, a hyper focus if you're doing your job right around around kind of what the user wants or what the audience wants. But unless you're couching it in like a ton of research and like, you know, like a, like a heat map for where people are looking or clicking, like people kind of, they kind of dismiss it if you don't have the, that kind of data to back it up. Cause they say like, well, it's just your opinion. But what's interesting from your That's perspective- true in America, not sure everywhere else, but yes, in America. Well, okay, okay, but no, let's no, get into that. But like, no. from your perspective, you're like, listen, I'm just looking at the signs and this is what I see. And it's like, it's the same intent. It's just that you, you there's more trust involved in, in you reading the signs versus someone like a designer reading the signs. What, what, what do you think that's uh, all about? Yes and no, because I think sometimes we, we often work with agencies. We don't, we usually get hired by the client, not by the agency. Although sometimes we get hired by an agency or oftentimes uh-huh. we all, we always encourage the client to include the agency in our process. Cause we want, basically we want, if they already have an agency, you know, of record, we want them to work with their design agency or their marketing agency to almost write the design brief together. Thanks mm, to yeah. our work. Basically, right. one thing I one thing I tell agencies and clients is our work helps make clients better clients because mm. at the end of this process they're going to step back and instead of saying, "Hey, Joe, we want something fun, funky, and, fr- and feminine," and you come back <laughs> with like three really cool, fun, funky, and feminine ideas, and they're like, "Yeah, I kind of like it. I don't like it. This guy looks purple. That guy hates purple. That's not right. what we were talking about. That's not what we meant by fun. That's not what we meant by funky, right?" It's the it's the why it's why clients hate agencies and agencies hate clients because. Because the client didn't didn't know, didn't understand, you know, right. in an analytical enough way what they wanted before they wrote their brief. Right. So we're, we try to tell them, hey, I know it costs more money, it takes more time, but if you hire us before you start that process, whether it's marketing or innovation or design or whatever it is, bring us in. We'll help you take a step back, take a very analytical look at this cultural space or this mm. category space that you're getting into involve the agency have them almost help with our work you know what i mean mm-hmm. uh, at the end at the end of that process you're going to write your brief about fun funky and feminine if, if we're even still using those terms after this process yeah and it's going to be you're going to say hey this is what we mean by fun and we don't mean these things by fun you know what i mean mm-hmm. and these are the you know these are like some and they're not going to tell you how to do your job they're not we're not we don't i don't know how to design i don't know how to do marketing but we're not going to say use this typeface use this color but we're going to say you know, if you want to be in this quadrant of the map, this kind of palette, these kind of these sorts of typefaces, these sorts mm. of images, these sorts of facial expressions is what you want. These ones, these adjacent ones, if you want to kind of move into that direction or that direction, you have a right to do that because you kind of mm. you, you're sort of in the space. This part of the map over here is off limits to you. That's completely mm. the opposite of what you're trying to do. You, you'd be sending a mixed message if you go there. You can't be all things to all people. So, we, it's almost it's almost like doing brand strategy. Although I don't really call myself a brand strategist, but there is a, a strategic kind of stepping back, thinking about the big picture um, before they get to the part of actually writing the brief. Now, to answer your question about whether they should trust me or not, I do think that <laughs> I do think this is what um, your future clients may be listening. So answer correctly. <laughs> uh, I've been doing it for twenty years now, so they kind of trust me just because I'm yeah. at this point. But the um, I do think the designers do this. Like whenever I work with Tony Leone, my my design um, partner, who I do a lot of projects with and shares an office with me, 
you know, when I ask him to do a new website for me or design a book cover or whatever it is, he goes off and does something like what I do. And I'm sure you guys do something similar. There's like a little bit of research, a little bit of analysis, but it's kind of a brief part of the process, maybe a few days. Um, and, you're, and it's kind of back of the envelope. You're sort of just relying on your sort of intu intuition and your expertise, all of which is good. I'm sure you come up with some good ideas and it's, I'm sure it's you're right most of the time. What we do is try to, especially because it's so subjective what we're doing and we really want people to believe in it. We just do it like in a really intense way. We look at 40 brands and we look at, you know, 60 pieces of stimulus for each brand. And we spend weeks thinking about, you know, what each aspect of the stimuli means and how it means, mm -hmm. what it means. Mm -hmm. And we make maps, you know what I mean? And right. we chart, we put codes on the map and we put the brands on the map. And so at the end of that process, they might quibble with us about some of the, our length, some of the way we word things or describe things or where we put a code or a, a brand on the map. But basically they're, you know, they believe in the big picture at the end of it. That's really interesting. In the more digital space uh, for human-centered design, for example, uh, one of the earliest parts of the process is uh, ethnography. Mm -hmm. Is that somewhat similar? Is it in the same space? Is one come before the other? Yeah, that's a fair question. So what I call semiotics, a, a, a real like academic semiotician would probably say what I do is not pure semiotics. Really what mm -hmm. I do is kind of a hybrid of ethnography and semiotics, neither of which, by the way, I'm trained in. I, I, was, <laughs> I was a religion major in college. <laughs> is that semiotics? Yeah. I dropped out of, That's a I form dropped of semiotics, no? Yeah. <laughs> Reading well, arcane texts? <laughs> actually, religion was an amazing, uh, I, I'm not a religious person, but it was an amazing um, I want to give a shout out to the religion major because yeah, we studied history, we studied sociology, we studied semiotics, we studied anthropology. Yeah. Like, we got a little bit of everything in there. It was yeah. really cool. That <laughs> and the texts that you're studying really matter because they're like the foundational texts of how people live their lives. You know, right. Right. it's not like reading Moby Dick. You know, you're, you're, you're reading the Bhagavad Gita. That's really important shit. <laughs> um, nothing Moby Dick isn't important. But, um, <laughs> So yeah, uh, ethnography. Thousands of emails yeah. from Moby Dick fans. <laughs> <laughs> really, what I do is really very related to kind of um, the work that Clifford Geertz, the famous American um, ethnologist, did because he he was very interested in semiotics, but he was very impatient with what he thought of as the French way of doing semiotics, which was to set, the French would like study like primitive, so-called primitive societies and myths and stuff, and come up mm -hmm. with these like maps of like you know, what everything means. And then, and then they would just go out looking for more, more proof of like their amazing, brilliant map. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And he was being an American is much more pragmatic and skeptical that you can have such a map that works all across all cultures and for all time. And he was like, yeah, you can, I think you can make a map of each situation you enter each, in his case, each village that he visited, you know what I mean? Or each, each ethnic ritual he was studying, you can make a map of that, but you can't, mm -hmm. then, you can't then go and say this applies to all humankind and all history. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Right. So, and I really like that about him and his work. And so he he took the good part of semiotics, which is this kind of very analytical way of, um, you know, p picking apart the, the stimuli that you're studying and the evidence that you're studying, and kind of um, taking to this abstract realm and building kind of models. But he's also very skeptical about the possibility of you know universalizing it. So I'm kind of a Geertzian fake ethno semiotic. <laughs> Interesting. So. I mean, so let me let me let me play the the, the devil's advocate here. Maybe let me play the perhaps uh, more uh, utilitarian skeptic and say, like, isn't this just kind of a whole bunch of guesses? Like, why is this more? Why is this more informed than just like someone's gut from the man on the street? Besides the fact that you read more books, is there is there something about the process 
or maybe let me back up and say, like, is there a system that allows you to pull out insights that maybe other people aren't obviously seeing? Yeah, well, so the reason it's more um, objective in a way than kind of the, the two-day version of it that a designer might do, I think, is that yeah. it's just the volume, right? It's just we're looking at so much more material, spending more time on it. It's not really about books. I'm not really bringing any theories to bear on this. It's really just looking very carefully for patterns and creating a whole, you know, like a 150-page slideshow, you know, of breaking it all down into very, very granular in a very granular way and like arguing right. with myself and spending time kind of going over it and kind of creating a system that feels like it is right and that it works and that it correctly yeah. captures something. As far as like, why is it better than consumer research? What I tell clients, and I, it, we do a lot of consumer research. Like I, I conduct it myself. I help create consumer facing stimuli for, for you know, research agencies. I, I believe that there's a lot of value to consumer research. I'm not, this is not a, an either or situation. However, mm. consumers and, and consumer researchers themselves will tell you this. Consumers can't tell you everything they know because they don't know everything that they know. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of implicit knowledge that we all have just by being members of a culture that mm -hmm. we, we're just absorbing um, you know, the how and the what of what, th what things mean and how things mean all the time. We're being educated even though we don't know it every time we walk down the toothpaste aisle in the supermarket by how you know, what colors and shapes signify about what that toothpaste experience is going to be for you. You know what right. I mean? Right. And as those, as the culture changes and as the packs change, we, you know, we learn those new ways and, you know, the brands that don't change with the culture, we find those packaging or their advertising less relevant and less engaging. We don't know why mm. exactly. A, you, a consumer research can ask you, why is this packaging better than that packaging? And the consumer will have a couple interesting things to say, but they can't mm. really get granular about why the light burst works. It doesn't work for them. Right. Whereas mm -hmm. I can say, hey, if you look at 40 packages and we look at the light burst, you can see that, you know, the light burst is residual compared to like these other ways of expressing the same idea of expanded horizons. You know what I mean? And you, and you do this without directly talking to users. You do mostly just through like an audit process. Yeah. In a pure semiotics study, we wouldn't talk to consumers until afterwards. And then we would use our these. The nice thing about semiotics, one of the nice things about semiotics is that it very quickly gets you to interesting ideas and opportunities that that the you know the brand team wasn't going to get to on their own. We get them mm -hmm. from their way of thinking. We show them in their own world in a very analytical way that they're not used to thinking about. We bring in ideas from adjacent categories and stretch categories to inspire them. So they already have like a lot of ideas they didn't have before. Um, and I lost, I lost track of also about what, how, when, we, when we use consumer research. Yeah. So in a perfect world, we um, do that semiotics work first to get them, get, get them to those interesting opportunities. And then that helps them sharpen the pencil so that when they go do their consumer research, they ask much better questions. Because right. you got to know, if you ask a consumer, you know, what do you like in the toothpaste category, toothpaste dial, what don't you like? They're going to give you some kind of generic answers. If you say, hey, when you see you know, um, vector shapes and making an arrow pointing to the right versus vector shapes making an arrow pointing to the left. What does that mean to you? You know what I mean? Right. Right. Ask mm -hmm. Much more pointed questions after doing a semiotic process. So that's one of the reasons we suggest doing semiotic first. However, we do a lot of different ways. Sometimes we will, um, in fact, for this, for this particular project and vibrant optimism, we wanted to do level setting research first. So we went and in Brazil and the US and a couple other markets, we did a shop along. So we hired research agencies and had them do shop alongs with consumers in supermarkets where they stood 10 feet away from the toothpaste aisle and um, 
talked about like what they were already kind of seeing and how they were kind of navigating. And they got five feet away, three feet away, and they actually picked the pack up. So we kind of interviewed, you know, we had them interviewed about that whole process and how that worked for them. Mm -hmm. And you Mm -hmm. learn things like nobody reads a small type, nobody looks at the back of the package, you know what I mean? (laughs) Right, right. People just look for whatever their brand is. They don't look at the other ones. They just look for their brand and find their way there. And then they are, but they're still confused because there's so many branches in there, et cetera. Right. So that that's interesting, and then we do. But then we don't really. We might take some of that into account when we're doing our semiotics. But probably what we're going to do is marry that to our semiotics work for like our our workshops that we do with the clients. Mm-hmm. To say, you know, here's the semiotics. Here's the consumer research. Here's how we think they fit together. What's a better way of doing it, in my opinion, in, in my experience, is that if you do the semiotics first and then do some semiotic research to kind of validate by which I mean test and disprove and prove our hypotheses, like have them have them argue against our ideas mm-hmm. and have build on our ideas and give more examples and more texture to our ideas. And then we come back and have that workshop. It's like really powerful because then we're showing them this big abstract analysis, but we're also saying, and here's where consumers said we were wrong. Here's where consumers said we were right. Here's where consumers said, yeah, but it's better if you do this kind of, do it this way. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it offends me when you do it that way. So that, that's very powerful when you marry the two together. So as you probably have heard on past episodes, like a recurring theme between Joe and I is like, you know, I love patterns and Joe likes to like do weird things. So everything you're saying is music to my ears. <laughs> it's great. Thanks for bringing me on the show, Joe. I also have an arrow in my quiver from this conversation. So after you go, I'm going to go. Okay. Okay. So, but I was going to ask, so if you're looking at all this data and you're trying to understand, um, understand kind of this visual vocabulary of what people kind of uh, uh, intuit and interpret and whatnot. Like, isn't there a risk to, to start to uh, confirm some bias that might already exist? Like, how do you break out? I mean, does it, does it like form to the mold or is it an opportunity to kind of break out of the box? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's kind of one of the big ongoing kind of um, debates within the world of semiotics, like academic semiotics is, if you can create a kind of this perfect kind of diagram of how meaning works in the space, how does anything new ever happen? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. If it's always, if everything has, if, if we're, are we actually totally determined by this network of assumptions right. and meaning in, in society and we can't really choose outside of that, then how does change ever happen? Mm-hmm. Um, that's, uh, that's the science fiction novel that I'm working on. Now. <laughs> <laughs> that's basically the plot. But uh, yeah, to answer your question, so when I have our workshops with clients, I show them the map and I say, basically, this is like a map of kind of best practices happening in the space right now. Here's kind of the dominant codes kind of show you like what's top of mind for consumers in the space as, as regards this kind of how meaning works in the space, mm-hmm. what, what the colors mean to people, what the facial expressions mean, what the you know typography means and so forth. But um, that's not the whole question. That's not the whole, um, you know, learning here part. Right. We also have these cliched codes that we want to tell you about. So we found some codes that are being used by some brands out there. And probably if we'd done this project five years ago, there were, we would have seen a lot more brands using it, but now only a few are still doing it. These are actually really valuable to know about and clients, I'm sorry, consumers have a hard time articulating these cliched codes because they, they all they think of is the top of mind stuff, right? Mm-hmm. We say, hey, listen, it's actually useful to know about the colorful explosion and the shiny burst because people have a gr- incredible fondness for things from the past, right? From things from our childhood, from things from from 20 years ago, from things from 100 years ago. We think that's that was cool, but we, we don't want it on our packaging unless it's brought to life in a really new, relevant, engaging way. Mm-hmm. And that's basically what like retro is, and that's what hipsterism is, right? right. Mm-hmm. 
finding a way to bring that cool old thing back to life in a way that feels relevant and engaging for now. Hmm. Um, that's what Neo soul is. And right. It's, it's, it's a big part of our culture. So part of what we're part of the value we're adding here is we're actually showing you these kind of cliches of the space that if you could find a way to reinvent them and reanimate them, that's actually could be very cool. And then the other thing we're bringing to them are emerging codes. So there are some codes that only a few brands are activating against and these feel these are more disruptive and these are codes that are being barred from other spaces and, and some brands are like taking risks. And that's why we in a perfect world, we convince our clients to not only include market leading leading brands in our mm -hmm. set, but also challenger brands who might not have a lot of market share yet, but they're disrupting the space in some interesting way. They're mm -hmm. bringing some new energy through their package design or their advertising or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So um, if we have that in our stimulus set, we can say, hey, it looks like, you know, the culture might be headed a little bit in this, these directions and the 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 the, your your category is probably also going to head in these directions. Now we we're not futurists. I don't know which of these are going to pan out, which of, which of them will fizzle out, and which of them will eventually become the new dominant codes. Mm -hmm. But at least it is a peek into like kind of where things are headed. Mm -hmm. And on top of all that, in addition to saying we're giving this very nuanced look at kind of how things are now, how things were, but you could reinvent, and how things might be kind of becoming. Mm -hmm. um, we also say you have a bunch of choices now as a, as a brand, like we're showing, we show you based on your brand equities and we've mapped your brand as well. We know what your codes are. We know where you play on this map. Unless it's an innovation project, then it's all about white space, but usually it's a brand that already exists and they, you know, they already have a kind of positioning. Hmm. Here's where you play in this space based on what you've been doing in the past, your existing equities. Um, here are you, here's who you're directly competing with for Mindshare because they're activating against very similar codes to you, right? In their packaging, mm. in their marketing and so forth. So that's mm. your direct competition for Mindshare. Mm. Here are some brands who are a little bit to one side or the other of you. And you have a right to kind of go in those directions. And if you, if you see kind of opportunity to like differentiate or win in your space by shifting a little bit, usually brands don't want to shift a lot because that's means throwing away equities that you worked really hard to develop. But you can just shift a little bit then yeah, then we can kind of, based on like our mapping exercises, we can kind of say, all right, here's how you would get there. You would have to stop doing these things. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. these codes belong to the space you're trying to leave. So you right. you have to make a hard decision here. Do you want to lose that color or that, you know, that shape or that typography, whatever it is you've been doing? That doesn't play anymore if you're going to this space. And you need to add some codes if you're going to that space. Mm -hmm. You can also just stay exactly where you are, you know, especially if you're like a really iconic brand, you, you don't really want to leave where you are. You just want to beat off the, you just want to beat away, I should say, the your comp competition. Then you need to just make sure you're activating against the most emerging codes of the space. So mm -hmm. don't change your, don't change who you are and what you're about, but express it in the most relevant and engaging way possible. And that's something else that we can kind of help show you how to do through this. Interesting. So it's really well, yeah. more about like showing showing your clients the the full spectrum, and and kind of saying, and it's not really providing or like a roadmap. Um, but it is saying here is the spectrum of of what customers know and where your competitors sit, and then having engaging them in a conversation about where they want to move to. Yeah, it's really it's really about that conversation, and, those, and that's what I was really happy to partner with my my partner Ron Rintel because he's really good at running those kind of workshops. I'm such a nerd. Like my favorite part of all this is the nerdy part. 
like, I, I was never happier than back when I was the guy behind the curtain for the <laughs> they, would say, they would they made the sale, they wrote the brief, you know what I mean? They I'm they, with you. I'm a, yeah. they, <laughs> I'm I'm totally in your camp. Josh, we need you to study twenty five male grooming brands and tell us what like shaved chest mean versus not shaved chest. <laughs> that sounds you know, like heaven to me. Yeah, here's eight thousand dollars, you have one week, and I'll be like, Oh, thank you. <laughs> Um, and now I have to do that. You know, I do the sales and I do the, write the briefs. And I write the, pro- write the proposals. I do everything myself now and I have to run the workshops. So Ron is right. really, really good at those kind of client workshops and the yeah. brainstorming and kind of holding everyone's hands. And he speaks, he understands the world of branding and marketing better than I do. So he can kind of, he knows what they want and he knows the language they speak. So we do that stuff together, which is really valuable. But yeah, the, my, the goal of this process is to stop what you're doing. Like we're saying, don't rush into the next phase. Like you know that you're having a problem. Like you've lost market share. Right. People, people don't know what you stand for anymore. You've had too many brand managers over the years. You've worked too many agencies. You've been all over the place. You tried to be all things to all people. You've lost, you know, whatever, whatever happened, you lost something that you had. You don't know what you stand for anymore. You don't know what are, are relevant, engaging ways to express what you do stand for. Mm. Um, don't rush into just, don't just go off and hire a cool, don't just go hire Joe Altario. You know, don't don't immediately go hire the agency. Yeah, they'll, I'm sure they'll do an okay job, but please stop for a second and let us take you on this like journey of like diving deep into this space, whether it's a cultural space or the category space, painting you this like very um, detailed landscape of that space, and then talking you through all these opportunities that we see in our from our per- point of view all the opportunities that we see for you and things that we think that you shouldn't do. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And then, especially if you included your agency in that process, like especially if you include them in the workshop, yeah. by the end of that process, we can say, hey, together we have come up with guardrails. We didn't create new marketing for you. We didn't create new brand, new packaging for you, mm-hmm. but we have some guardrails around your brand now, what you meant by fun, funky, and feminine. You know, what, right, right. And then you can now write a really, really nuanced, sensitive um, uh, brief that's going to, give you give your agency partners a lot of confidence that what they come back with is going to be what you want and you will have a rubric to judge what they come back with so when, when joe comes back with his three concepts for you they can they're not just sitting there in that uh, annoying way that clients have and saying yeah we like kind of like it i kind of don't like it this person likes it that person doesn't like it they can say hey let's look at the map you know what i mean let's look right. at the codes and, and kind of judge it against that rubric. So, so almost in that way you're removing some uh some unintentional bias from stakeholders Right. Which could be like, you know, middle-aged white men. Right. Like I, <laughs> like I talk about this problem. Mm-hmm. I once worked with a CEO that didn't like the color purple. And so yeah, yeah, yeah. You never use the color purple in anything. And it was yeah. just it was so ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and so this way you can kind of remove some of that by, by, uh, by defining those guardrails. Right. Yeah, and, and listen, at the end of the day, they're still going to do whatever they want, right? Like, you know, you, <laughs> Clients. God damn it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, when, I, when, I'm, when I write my case studies up, like for every seven jobs I do, I can only do like one case study because the other six, either they never do anything or they, what yeah. they did, I don't recognize my work in that. You know right, I mean? right, yeah. Because yeah. um, no. ha- what we do is so high up in the chain or the you know, upstream, we're not actually making the, the new packaging. So a lot, a lot of shit can happen, right, at that end of things. Right. Yeah. What's really interesting about this, and and that's just so fascinating, is that is that I I I wish like I had could work with a semiotician with every single one of my projects, right? Because like, so I I bang on all the time. We had an episode a couple of I don't know maybe 
couple months ago now, basically about like observation. And I was like, no, 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 it's about kind of like, you have to be a good observer to kind of be a good designer. And I don't think I knew what I was talking about at the time, but now I think what I'm saying is that people, there are some people that are a little bit better at observing those cultural patterns than other people in the sense mm -hmm. that like, they're already doing a little bit of the super light semiotics touch of like, they already recognize a certain kind of typography trend is kind of played out. And all of a sudden that typography is on milk bottles. So like, if you're trying to be hip, don't use the typographies on milk bottles because no one wants to be associated with milk bottles. Maybe that's a little bit what I was talking about. I didn't realize it. And having a professional that's actually like, what you want to aim for is to leave all this bullshit up behind and do the fresh new thing, pulling from another space. Like you've just kind of codified and systemized that thing that maybe the better creative people were just kind of doing naturally, but not really realizing they were doing. Do you think that's kind of true? Oh yeah, I think exactly. I think one thing I love, I hear designers say this a lot and I really like it is the idea that you're not paying me for this project. You're paying me for like the last 20 years of my experience. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Like, yeah, totally. I've, I've, I'm really good at what I do because I've learned so much and I've studied so much. And like, I see things in a way that, yeah, you could hire somebody who's much younger and cheaper than me, but they haven't seen all the things that I've seen, you know? Right. Um, right. So right. yeah, you, and obviously some people are, have really good intuition, really good design set, natural design sense. And some people are naturally good at kind of saying what things mean at the top of their head, but it's not a parlor trick. Like mm. I'll be at literally be, I'll be, I'll be at a party and I, I don't even tell people I do something because it takes like 30 minutes to explain, you know what I mean? Right. <laughs> rolling their eyes at the end. I say like, I, I work in marketing. I don't know. I'm a, <laughs> I'm, I, I consult to marketing people. I if I told you I did, I'd have to kill you, but yeah, I, I um, I tell people that, uh, yeah, oh, I totally lost what I was going to say. Like, <laughs> all the things I don't want to say apart. So, you're you're talking about like, your oh, fake jobs at cocktail parties. Yeah. <laughs> people say, it's, oh, semiotics. So like, oh, show me, tell me what this means. I'll like, hold up like a candy bar, you know? What is this? Right. I'm like, well, it's not a, it's not a part of the trick. You know what I mean? Like, right. Right. I don't know. I would have to give me six weeks and 40 candy bars. <laughs> you're right. You know, and I will come back and tell you everything about that fucking candy bar. Right. <laughs> So, okay. So, so almost related to that is, so what would be, uh, what's like the example of like, uh, like an awesome, amazing semiotics experiment that we might all be associated with? Like, you know, like I'm like, is it a new Coke classic Coke type thing? Or is it, is there any, like a case study that you see like in your, in your kind of space that just kind of stands out as like a classic example? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, so um, some years ago, before I started this, my current company, Semiavox, I did a project for haagen where they had this iconic packer. They invented this kind of ultra luxury, ultra premium ice cream. Mm -hmm. And they had, they had this very recognizable pack that had the gold crown and like the, gold, the gold filigree and the, yeah. the burgundy, you know, um, underneath and the swoosh and the square of chocolate. And yeah. The, um, it was very luxurious for the time, for the 80s, right? Right. But in the year 2000, it looked, or 2010, when I got on this project, it looked like Dynasty. You know what I mean? It looked like a very, um, very played out idea of luxury. So we did, again, I didn't design the new packaging, but we did a big study of luxury. And we looked at not just in the confection space, not just in ice cream, but in, and not even just in food, but in cars and you know, jewelry and uh, home decor. You know what I mean? Like a big... Uh, cross-category study of luxury and one of the kind of themes we came up with that they really were attracted to was the idea of the luxury of less like 
minimalism. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And they ended up designing a new package where they, they they kept the burgundy and gold, but they they flipped things. So now it didn't have a gold crown on it anymore. It didn't feel so royal. It was a burgundy cover. Mm -hmm. And they kept some of the filigree, but it was just like a little strip along the top. It wasn't like half the package anymore. So you could still mm -hmm. recognize it as haagen like that iconic mm -hmm. pattern that they had, but it didn't feel like they were trying to be Louis, you know, Couture's in his palace. Yeah. And they started using chunks of chocolate instead of a bar of like fancy European chocolate because chunks by that artisanal chocolate, right? Was the right. Mm -hmm. And they started using lowercase and serif typography instead of you know, they had like italic serif typography. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? And they had like mm -hmm. tasters, they put tasting notes on the back, like it was wine. You know what I mean? Interesting. So that was one that's from a long time ago now, but that was a really iconic one because it was Hagen dazs you know mm -hmm. what I mean? And mm -hmm. that was a really cool, it was really cool to see how in that case it really came directly out of our work that it kind yeah. of turned into that new packaging. Um another kind of more um you guys have coffee bean and tea leaf out there? Yeah, that's a that's from out there, right? It's from also from Los Angeles. It's in California. Yeah. yeah. But it's it's yeah. all over it's all over America actually, but it's mostly in California. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, I've seen them in New York. But anyway, they want they we helped them redesign their interior space recently. And again, I didn't do any of the interior design, but we kind of did a study of coffee shop, <laughs> Los Angeles coffee shops. Hmm. And um, so if you've seen a if you've seen a new if you've seen a coffee bean uh, coffee bean and tea leaf store recently, they have this kind of um, rustic chic looking look going now that is very much came out of our work where we helped mm -hmm. them kind of understand that like what they could and couldn't do like they they could you know where they were kind of the sustaining nurturing space mm -hmm. that's that's where pete's is and starbucks is and it's all about kind of you know the kitchen and comfort and old-fashioned so they can't be like Stumptown or alfred they can't be ironic right they can't be mm -hmm. edgy that's that is not going to work. That's the no-go zone for them. Mm -hmm. However, they could move a little bit into like the kind of precision expertise space. So like, um, I think of like Bulletproof, for example. Mm -hmm. you know I mean? mm -hmm. Or it feels like a laboratory. You know what I mean? They could, they could borrow right. a little bit of that or like, you know, a super like streamlined lab look. They could also go a little bit into the kind of the easy breezy like space, like Lemonade and some of these um, kind of everyone's welcome. Come hang out in our space. It doesn't feel mm. um, so we want you to leave <laughs> hmm. um, so we kind of helped them you know, again we just kind of painted a portrait of their options and they ended up going with this kind of rustic chic look and going which is not so different from what they had before but it is very much feels much more contemporary and engaging huh, huh. And, do you, and do you have any uh do you have any epic fails it doesn't have to be yours so it can be <laughs> epic fails of semiotics i'm really like really curious what that well, might I, be like one thing one thing i was saying one thing i was saying is that a lot of our projects when the prod the product comes out i'm like i don't think that was what we talked about at all so i don't, know if, like, I don't know if that even counts as a fail because i don't even know what happened you know what i mean like right they might have they might have fired the agency and got a new person i don't know what happened but yeah one funny one, one weird one, very early on, I did this as kind of a guy behind the curtain, was when Dove wanted to kind of reinvent how they talked about beauty. Mm -hmm. This is like 20 years ago now. And um, I did a big study for them where I went and looked at, you know, a ton of beauty product on the shelves and the packaging and the advertising and salon interiors. And I was like, huh, I'm kind of seeing a big divide between kind of French beauty, which is very much about being like perfect and never mm -hmm. aging and never having a mm -hmm. line on your face and looking mm -hmm. like a porcelain statue and not a hair out of place. Your hair is perfect. So like call it Catherine Deneuve. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. you're 60 mm -hmm. years old and you look fucking amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of weird because it's kind of weird to look like when you're 50, right? Yeah. And then 
the then there's this kind of American ideal of beauty that's trying to break through in like the the, the CVS shelf space and the and the supermarket space and you know salons, but it's, it can't really compete against the French ideal. But it's kind of like you can be beautiful and sexy, but also look like you've lived. You can have like some mm. laugh lines. You can have some sun damage. You can have mm. hair can can be a little bit un, un, not perfect. You can have freckles, mm-hmm. right? You can be a little bit. Uh, your body has to be a certain shape. Um, and uh, we called it the Susan Sarandon space. And I realized mm-hmm. as I was writing it that, oh, there's a fucking amazing new wave vampire movie with Catherine Deneuve and Susan Sarandon. Where <laughs> Catherine, Catherine Deneuve is like an, an immortal vampire and David Bowie is her lover. And she seduces They seduce oh, Susan Wait, Sarandon. what is this movie? It's a, oh, the it's Hunger. It's, the Hunger. Yeah. <laughs> oh my it's God. This is, I'm watching this tonight. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's slightly unwatchable, but it's also, <laughs> it's kind of the perfect metaphor for this. It's about how the American beautiful person is so attracted to that immortal French beauty thing. You know what I mean? But it's, mm-hmm. it's really kind of vampiric. So we were saying, hey, Dove, you could do this kind of cool thing where you really kind of celebrated imperfection and beauty. Take it or leave it. That's just our, our, my two cents. Mm-hmm. And they fucking mm-hmm. came up with the Dove campaign for new real beauty, which is, this enormous, massive, ongoing effort where they put, mm-hmm. if you've, you've seen the posters, you yeah. know, like yeah. women of all shapes and sizes and women with amazing freckles and old women, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, incredible. Now, that's not a fail. It's, it's a fail in this way. I, I was really like amazed and they, they kind of took what I said and like went way beyond what I suggested. And it was so amazing and kind of empowering and cool. I was kind of patting myself on the back about it. But then I was in a subway station, parking station here in Boston where Joe is also from. And there was a, one of their new posters and I was so proud. I was walking towards it. I was like, oh, that's me. I helped make that. And then I saw it was like a, a plus size model, a couple plus size models in the, in the Dove ad. And someone had written across it, oh, great. Now fat people can be exploited by the beauty industry too. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> that had not occurred to me. <laughs> Um, all right. So I think we're, we're at, probably near the end of our time here. You know, we, we got what? a lot of a young, so much I, know. About. <laughs> I know I, I, I wish we could talk for six more hours. This conversation is so fascinating, but, uh, we got a lot of young designers and people that are just starting out in their careers. Um, do, would you have anything to say in terms of just kind of like advice for young designers when they're actually, when they're, when they're faced with maybe a, a, a new client and the client doesn't really know what they want, what, what? Is there any type of steps they could take to maybe a little bit leverage some of uh, some of your work or, or what you've learned over the years? Yeah, I mean, I would definitely suggest that y- you need to educate your client to be a better client, although you can't let them know that's what you're doing, obviously. <laughs> right? But you have to, they are not going to write a good brief. They are not designers, right? And mm-hmm. a lot of the, a lot of people, I hate to say, a lot of people in that world of you know, running brands, they're MBAs. They know how to run a business. They're good right. at running its works. And when things stop working, they don't know what to do because they don't understand culture that well. They don't understand design that well, right? That's not their right. field. Right. So you need to... Um, kind of hold their hand a little bit and don't just say, I'm a hotshot. I know, you know, I, I just came out of design school. I know, you know, I am young and I'm cool. And so if you want something young and cool, I'm the guy to hire. Sure. Great. But educate them a little bit, like draw them some charts. You know what I mean? Like make, do some research and have like several pages showing your research and showing what it all means. And don't just say, here's three pictures of uncool green things. So green's not cool anymore. You know what I mean? Like have a little bit of an explanation. Why is not green cool anymore? You know what I mean? Right. Mm-hmm. right. I think ch- people like charts. People like, you know, proof. So the more material you can put in there, the better. You know, um, 
try, try to take your own biases out of it and through that process as well. Yeah, yeah. More charts. People like charts. You heard it here first, folks. People like charts. <laughs> well, Josh Glenn, what an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for giving us some of your precious time. Um, let's do this again, yeah? Yeah, this is just part one. This is just part one. <laughs> part one of 57. Thanks, guys. Right, I, love your, I love your podcast. I'm so pleased that you had me on. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Josh. Okay. See ya. Thanks for listening and a special thank you to Josh Glenn from semiovox.com. You can find all of our past episodes on designer.fm. Yep. And if you ever want to email us about anything at all, email us at designer at designer.fm. Please like, subscribe, tell your friends, tell everyone you know that we're amazing because we are. See you guys.